So this morning I want to continue the inquiry into the nature of our, our views, our ideas, our principles, our thinking, and how we work with, uh, how we work with views, how we work with our uh, ideas, really our thinking mind. And today in particular, I want to point to how we might work with the more subtle dimensions of our views. So far, I've pointed to ways of understanding and working with our everyday ordinary views. When we've uh, sampled for views that people work with, that they might find they have some uh, tendencies towards attachment with, we've often focused on the presidential election or views about the presidential election or just the everyday views that one finds about how people should behave, are behaving, and so forth. And I want to review that, that briefly, <clears throat> but particularly focus today on looking at more subtle dimensions of views. In other words, I mean, I'm really offering a range of practices about how to work with views, ideas, principles, and so forth, from the everyday to the more subtle. And again, the core teaching that certainly that we receive from the Buddhist tradition is that it's wise to have a pragmatic approach to using views not to see them as absolutes, but essentially to see our views, our concepts, as uh, essentially human constructions that do not have a one-on-one -on -one correspondence to reality. <laughs> that they're at best useful and skillful, and the particular use that is most important is do these concepts, do these theories, do these views help me to become free? So there's a pragmatic approach to this. And there's also a progression where one moves from working with more surface level views or more everyday views to looking into more subtle views. And I'll today especially look at the subtle views while reviewing how we work with the more everyday, ordinary, uh, surface-level views. You know, I originally started to look at views in the context of working with the judgmental mind. And in many ways, the looking at views is helpful because a lot of the places that we're attached to views or very fixated on views are precisely where we're going to be judgmental. Probably there was a very close correspondence, like last time when we looked for examples of where we're attached to views, a very close correspondence with where we might become judgmental of ourselves and others. And again, remembering that I'm defining judgmental as having that charge or that reactivity. It's not the same thing as a discernment of the way something is without reactivity or charge. 
right? And, and again, the uh, content can be the same, it's just as a reminder. So again, as a teacher, it's very important for me to have discernment about the people I work with, to see this, to see that, even to have a view, oh, this would help. Oh, there's that tendency, how do we work with that, right? And if, I'm, if I have that discernment without reactivity, it will help me to become a skillful teacher, right? To see this, to propose this practice, this course of action. If I'm judgmental, first of all, the person will know it in like a split second, right? <laughs> and if I'm judgmental, if I'm saying, this person has not made enough progress, what's wrong with this person? Yeah. Hopefully, I, I rarely do that. Um, Hopefully. But to the extent that I do, my teaching is going to be ineffective. And again, people will pick up on this immediately. And unless I have a lot of other redeeming qualities, they'll probably uh, will not continue working with me if I'm judgmental. So just wanted to be clear again on that, on that definition. I won't focus so much on the judgmental mind or judgments, but I wanted just to give that brief account for, for clarity's sake. And so we've, we've uh, looked particularly at uh, the teachings uh, of the Buddha, which give us certain guidance, and how that approach to views is so pragmatic. It's really, there, there's, there's that guidance to, don't, to not believe a certain view because it comes with tradition not to follow a certain view and believe in it because this person said it or because you logically figured it out. And the guidance was see whether it works in practice and brings you benefit. See whether it is a view which leads to negative consequences. That's the teaching from the Kalama Sutta where the Buddha spoke to a group of very confused people who had all sorts of, in this case, spiritual views coming at them and said, what should we believe? We get diametrically opposed views. And he said, basically, check it out in your own experience. And I think it's that pragmatic emphasis which has led to uh, Buddhist tradition being so influential in the West. I think also in, in Asia as well, historically. Because it's a very... It's a very, for us, I think, we, you know, many of us actually may have grown up with dogmatic religious views and said, you know, said different things. <laughs> Possibly said, get me out of here. Anyone relate to that in your history? Okay, so some of you did. Of course, that doesn't mean they're not all sorts of good features, but for many of us, this pragmatic emphasis is so crucial and it's also very, in a, in a way, it's very, um, what? Um, it, there's a humility to it, you know, and it's really saying, try this out, don't accept what we're saying. I think that goes for us as teachers at Spirit Rock. We're saying, try this out. We do say, as I mentioned last time, give it a little time to try out. <laughs> don't just try it out in a day and say, oh, oh didn't work, and so forth. You want to take some time. So there's that pragmatic emphasis and a, also a questioning of the uh, 
tendency toward to be attached to views, to be attached to religious views, spiritual views, political views, views about uh, really about anything. We can, we can be attached to, about the right way to do this, the right way to do that. And we've been looking, looking at that carefully. Now, interesting complexity that you might find as you hear teachings that there also, the Buddha gives that teaching, but then also says, I also teach right view. So what's going on? You know. And part of it is in the translation of right, which was a translation made by early Victorian translators. And it's not the greatest translation. The, the actual word is sama, which has more being from an Indo-European language, has similarities to some English words like summary or uh, summation. And so it has more to do with highly developed or realized or complete rather than right or wrong or in the sense of opposed. And that's, that's one reason if you look actually, you know, when you go up to the retreat area, if you see that gate, you know, and, and by the gate and there's that wheel that one can spin that has the factors of the Eightfold Path, they're generally translated as write this, write that, but the word is sama for all of those. That's why at that gate, the translation is wise view or wise speech, which isn't a literal translation, but it gets at, I think, the, the connotations. So that's one of the possible confusions there. When if you hear or read right view, well, I thought he says everything should be pragmatic. Is there really a right view and a wrong view? And so I think it's a way to understand when, we, when there is speaking about right view. Again, it's the view that helps to one to come towards freedom. And remember, there's that account where one should take the teachings like a raft that helps you get to the other shore. When you're on the other shore, don't carry the raft around on your shoulders. Right. So that's really the function of right view. These are helpful views, but you want to hold them not with clenched fist. That's the, that's the teaching there. And then also, I think I wanted to mention another subtlety of this is that we want to know, and this is true in our lives generally, that when we use the word attachment, it can be confusing in English. Any of you who are psychologists know that attachment in psychology is actually a good thing, right? <laughs> you know, it means that you're securely connected to your parents and your, your home environment when you're young, and it's actually so you have attachment therapy, which is designed to do good things. So it can, the word attachment can be confusing. Uh, you know, it's more connected with a sense of grasping in a compulsive way. But we can ask, well, how does attachment differ from commitment? Right? Because commitment, I think, is a valuable thing, and attachment is a little bit different. So we want to know that distinction. You know, we want to know that with anything that we do, commitment can be very important. And attachment is a problem. So if you had to think and just in, say in one sentence, what is the difference between commitment and attachment? Or what's the characteristic of commitment that's not there with attachment? Anything come to mind if you just think immediately and you could say it in a sentence? Commitment sometimes is more voluntary. Yeah. Yeah, so commitment can be more 
voluntary and conscious, and attachment is often unconscious or compulsive. Okay, right. So you wanna, we want to check out what's actually going on inside. Is there unconscious reactive energy, or is this a conscious choice? Anyone else? Another suggestion? Please, Mark. To choose to, they choose to be vegan. yeah. Right. So someone someone can be committed to being a vegan, and the question is: Is that person self-righteous, imposing it on whatever friends, children, you know, sending endless emails? Could be sign of attachment, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So. So that, exactly, we want to see, uh, is there uh, any tendency to act in ways that look like they're attached, such as imposing it on others, being dogmatic, and so forth. So one can still be very committed, but, but free of that attachment. So some other things that I thought of that, that bring that out also is, is that the, um, the motivation is different. You know, the motivation can be different with... With commitment, again, it can be more conscious, and it maybe comes out of a deeper place. And with attachment, again, it can be more unconscious, compulsive, and it tends to come out of a different place. Now, one of the things, I don't want to go too much, and this could be the topic of a whole talk, because it's pretty interesting. Um, sometimes attach, one can be attached, but then when you keep looking at the attachment, you can, when you first get into meditation, you can get really attached to meditation. But you, it's not, we're not suggesting, oh, I'm, I'm attached to meditation, therefore drop meditation, right? Sometimes you can be attached to something, but if you keep looking, the motivation changes. And you can actually move from attachment to a deeper commitment by looking at your attachment. I think in some contexts, this is called fake it till you make it. <laughs> right, do you know that one? Right. And so, and... Um, the, another, another way to distinguish attachment from commitment, I think, is that there's a different understanding. And with commitment, we may have a very pragmatic view and a sense that views can be different for different people. Like, I can be a vegan and say, this is my choice. This isn't necessarily appropriate for everyone. And this is what I'm following. And I can hold the view a little more lightly and pragmatically. This isn't the final be-all and end-all of eating, and so forth. So those are, those are some of what um, occurred to me. So that's an important consideration as we look into attachment. How is it different from commitment? So I gave a number of practices in the last uh, few weeks, and hopefully we followed them. But just to review, one of the core practices is just noticing, this is more looking at the gross level uh, views, what are the main views I have? What's my top five or ten of views that I may be attached to? This is something we can look at. What does it feel like when I'm attached to a view? Can I explore that in my own experience? What does it feel like to attach to a view? Does it feel when we really look at it? And that's, that can be very important because we can see some of what we've just been looking at. How many of my main views do I have commitments to, but I hold them not in an attached way? A second practice that I've given is to 
particularly look at charge that one has around views of other people. And the invitation was to take noticing a charge about someone else's view as a starting point for inquiry rather than a starting point for war. And I, I talked about how that was a very important practice for me and still one that I do. It's a very, again, in, in context of the presidential campaign, work with that. Yeah. Or when you're with someone with very different views, can you actually listen, notice your charge, and ask, is there possibly something I might learn from this person, even though I have very different views? So notice the tendency to go to a reaction and maybe polarization, and see if you can work with that. And this related to a third practice of a kind of deep listening. Again, each of these we probably could talk about for, for some time. But can you listen when someone has a different view? Can you listen? Can you listen for what's beneath the surface? Can you listen for someone with a very different political view? What's there? Is there something? Can you listen not just for the view, but maybe for what's there in the person's experience? what might be valid or true and not simply polarize. These are not easy practices, right? Because we tend to go to attachment. Some practices which I uh, didn't mention uh, in the last few weeks, uh, a few others I'll add. Write a love poem to someone with a different view. This may be advanced practice. Another one was and this is pretty interesting, maybe with a friend, do a role play where you role play the person with a different view. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? See if you can get yourself into the, the mind and the heart and even the body of the other person. Role play the presidential candidates. Okay, advanced practice. <laughs> Work up to it. Okay. Another one is just sometimes to actually uh, do compassion practice for the challenges related to views. It's difficult. We get polarized, we get attached, we have conflict and so forth. And then last time we also did repeating questions with a, with a partner asking, tell me a way that you're attached to a view. Thank you. Tell me another way that you're attached to a view. Thank you. And we did that for four minutes, I think. And we also asked the question, uh, tell, me a way, tell me what helps you not be attached to view. We repeated those questions. So there are a lot of different techniques. Now, that kind of work with, uh, <clears throat> with views is particularly working with the views that we just notice in our experience. And there also are subtle views. And in a way, we could say that the subtle views are often not seen, and they're really what characterize our ignorance. And as we've seen, a lot of our dogmatic attachment to views is often half-conscious or unconscious. And so there's another way that we can look at views that we often don't even know we have. And to quote Donald Rumsfeld, we don't know what we don't know. Do you remember that press conference? Okay, anyway, I won't, I won't go there. 
We don't know what we don't know. Uh, it was in relation to weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> anyway, he, you, you can find it on YouTube. It was a press conference. Anyway, um, so, um, but there are, the, there are these views, and I, I tend to, f to divide them into three areas, and I'm going to talk about the last of them. But I th one, one area that we've looked at in the context of judgmental mind is there are unconscious, what we might call psychological views that we have. And there, there are views not in the sense of being consciously held. And I, I characterize these by talking about core beliefs. And again, it's a little misleading to use this language because belief or view can suggest something conscious or consciously chosen. But we've looked at how there can be deep, deeply conditioned core beliefs that we're not even aware we have that were, as it were, conditioned into us when we were four years old or five years old. They might be views like, I'm not okay, or, and I'm particularly focusing on the negative ones, there can be positive ones also, but there can be views like, uh, anger is bad. I may get that message at age four and have it deeply in my consciousness and not even know I have that view until my partner says, do you have issue with anger? <laughs> and I start looking at that and I realize, oh, something came maybe from my parents when I was four or five. They didn't want me to be angry. I got that message loud and clear and I developed this view and I hardly know I have it, right? And so there are any number of views like that. There can be views about oneself, there can be views about others. We may get a view that I can't really trust people. Again, I'm focusing on the negative ones, so it can be positive ones. Or a view like the world is dangerous. We may get that view. You know, I've had friends who were, had parents uh, who were in the Holocaust. They got that message really clear, right? The world is dangerous. Right? We, can get, we can get that view. Um, there are also views connected with social conditioning that again can be very unconscious. And I've talked about some of those. The, you know, the example that I've given a few times is what researchers now call implicit bias, right? That we have these tendencies to have in-groups and out-groups around what we call race, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, age. And a lot of this is on a quite un unconscious level. And so they've done research on implicit bias, and probably some of you know about this. I've talked about this from time to time, where people can have implicit bias, let's say, for example, about race, about racial categories, and they actually have bias, which comes from the culture and deep conditioning. And this is actually true in, in actually for all racial groups. People take it in, it's not just one group or the other, but one can take in this implicit bias. And so what's interesting about the implicit bias is that it's largely unconscious and it goes against even what someone professes as the view. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Right? So I can say I believe in equality or whatever, but one can actually have implicit bias. And they found that implicit bias is a much better predictor of behavior than what you actually say you believe. Somewhat sobering, isn't it? You know, it means, yeah. 
twice as hard. Yeah. Yeah, basically, you're coming up against this all the time. You know, and, and each of us have, are in some in-groups and some out-groups, and some more than others. You may have certain advantages as a man, for example. But yeah, you would come up with that. And they've, the, the research is pretty clear, for example. One of the things, one of the reasons you have to try twice as hard, for example, that literally, they've done research where they send a uh, resume with the exact same qualifications to an employer but they have, with one set of resumes, they have what seem to be, I don't know, more Anglo-Saxon or so-called white names, right? And then they have other names where they give the first name that sounds characteristically black. Now, a lot of names could be both. And they found that, and there's the exact same qualifications, and when they, 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 they very, the research is very clear that the, uh, people with the black names with the exact same qualifications are, are called back for interviews half as much, right? That's, that would be an example. What? That wasn't the point I was actually Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, the, the impact of feeling those views coming at you Right. Right. So, well, let me let me just respond. Yeah. So let me if I'm if I'm understanding you. So um, that's the 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 pressure that, for example, a lot of people internalize those views. Right. That's partly what you're talking about. You internalize it, and they, when they do the research, they find that um, you know a negative view of African Americans is internalized by African Americans as well. Right. And so it's not, <clears throat> and, and that, that one has to deal with, and just the stress of dealing with this, that so there are all sorts of research also on the health effects of just living with this, right? Is that some of what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let me take one more comment, because I, I, I want to get to the other material, yeah. I just want to piggyback on something, just given what you're saying. As a gay person, yeah. Right. So I, as a gay person, was raised in the 50s and 60s, just like a lot of the people in this room. And I incorporated all those negative things Yeah, yeah. There are going to be similar dynamics with every in-group and out-group. Uh, the internalization of oppression. I know this <clears throat> as um, having, you know, being of Jewish background and... You know, when I, I got stuff as a kid coming at me, and, um, you know, I learned that it wasn't good to mention, that I had this last name that sounds Jewish, right? So it couldn't really escape. So, you know, but I, I could feel it. it was, isn't, there was internalization going on. I, I know that. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I wanted to just give room for your comments because you... I, <clears throat> and it's not 
you know, let me, uh, because I, yeah, and also, also we, we'd be better if we used the mic, which we're not using. So let me, let me just re repeat briefly, and then if I can move on, is that okay? Yeah, it's basically saying is that that theme of having to work extra hard, acknowledging it, and uh, really just seeing how that works. And here, what I'm really pointing to, that this is a whole category, essentially, of um, unconscious views. This is a more subtle dimension of views that takes some work to get at, to get at the internalized homophobia, or to get at the uh, gender issues, or to get at the issues of race. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a, to me, it's a huge part of our practice that's relatively underdeveloped in our settings here. You know, and people are working, working with that. Um, so as if the psychological unconscious and the social unconscious weren't enough. <laughs> okay. We also have a third whole area uh, where we could say that there's basic uh, ignorance. And this is, these are the views that are particularly pointed out in the uh, Buddhist tradition. Uh, and these are, these are more <clears throat> about our views about the world and our very use of concepts. Um, that we, in some ways, don't see clearly. And in, in the tradition, particularly pointed out, and this is actually related to the social conditioning and the psychological conditioning, particularly pointed out in the uh, teachings of the Buddha are three ways that we don't see clearly, which I've talked about from time to time. We, we tend to see the outer world as made up of permanent objects. We tend to see ourselves as permanent, even if though we know otherwise. So we don't see impermanence clearly. We also don't see uh, what leads to suffering or what leads to well-being clearly. We, uh, we tend to think that grasping and pushing away will make me happy, whereas in fact it leads to suffering. So there's an ignorance in this case about dukkha about those dynamics. And the third level of ignorance, or the third area of ignorance, is about the nature of the self. That we tend to think that we are independent, separate, and permanent. And there's a whole area of inquiry into this. Now, the, the, um, the Buddha tended to go into this deeper level, as well as pointing out the, uh, the more everyday views that we have. And he basically said that as we move towards awakening, we also learn how to deconstruct these more subtle views. And so we could also say, I would also say, as we move towards awakening, we also need to deconstruct the psychological views and the social views. So in a way, <clears throat> to awaken in our time involves more than it did at the Buddha's time. If I can be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, you know, do you know what I'm saying? That, that I'm suggesting a model, which is more or less my presentation, you won't find this necessarily with other teachers, that to really come to awakening requires seeing through the psychological conditioning, the social conditioning, and then the more universal or existential conditioning that 
is talked about traditionally. And the Buddha often expressed this as following a middle way. And at first he talked about this more in terms of the middle way being kind of like not going to one side or the other. So you may know his story that he followed, he thought, when he was a prince in the palace, he had a life of indulgence. He followed pleasure, and there was efforts to make him always have pleasure of every kind, all the senses, all kinds of experiences. And then you know that famous sequence where the Buddha somehow left the palace, he left the protected environment, and he came into contact with illness, with old age, with dying, and also he came in contact with someone who was intending to be liberated. Right? And he, his worldview was blown open. It could be similar to some of maybe what we've experienced. So he went from a life of indulgence, and then he followed a very strict ascetic path which was in many ways extreme. He stopped eating a lot. He tortured his body to get rid of desire and so forth. And he followed this extreme ascetic path. At one point, he said he could touch his ribs by pushing from the back of his body. You know, and it was very extreme. And at one point, he came to an insight. Sitting by a river, he was offered milk by a milkmaid and against the ascetic precepts of his order, he took the milk. And he, at that point, said, this is appropriate, this is the middle way. The middle way is neither to indulge kind of mindlessly in what's pleasant, nor is it to repress, nor is it to... Uh, have extreme renunciation. He said, rather, there is a middle way that one can follow. And this was a pivotal moment. And you know, some of my colleagues interpret this actually not just as finding the middle way between um, indulgence and extreme asceticism, but also in a, a kind of gender balancing. You know, that, that the, the, the um, extreme asceticism was this very, kind of very you know, historically masculine, heroic, I will suppress my body, you know, I will control things and so forth. And some, you know, I, I, I'm open to this suggestion that this was sort of taking in the energy of the feminine and a balancing of the masculine and the feminine. There are ways in which the Buddha, like Jesus, is androgynous, sort of has both, both genders there. It's interesting in light of the social conditioning we were, we were just talking about. <clears throat> and so... It was very shortly after that that the Buddha uh, awakened. Right after that taking of the porridge, and the milk, and the kind of the, the balancing, the finding of the middle way. <clears throat> this is what he said shortly after. He, he talked about this as the middle way. He said, these two extremes should not be followed. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata, that was his name for himself, the thus gone, has awakened to the middle way which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, 
to direct knowledge to awakening. Later, that sense of the middle way was particularly focused on views. And there was a sense that the middle way is also about not following any of two dualistic views. And there was a sense that the world is constructed in terms of these dualistic views, one view on one side, one view on another. And he increasingly came to see that there were subtle views that are there in our ordinary consciousness in which we tend to be dualistic. These could be the views of self and other. It could be the view of past and present and so forth. A lot of our ordinary views are set up dualistically, right and wrong, and so forth. And he came to see that awakening has to take one beyond being attached even to the subtle views. So I'll say, for the rest of the time, I'll talk about what that means. Because it's not always, not always easy. This is, again, this is a statement of this notion of going beyond the subtle views. He said, everyday experience relies on the duality of it is this, or it is, and it is not. But for one who relies on wisdom and thereby directly perceives how the world arises and passes away, for that person, there is no it is, and no it is not. Everything exists, except is simply one extreme. And nothing exists as the other extreme. The Buddha relies on neither of these two extremes. He teaches the Dharma as a middle way. What this is pointing to is that, and then this would be developed by later traditions, is that in a way so much of our experience is constructed in terms of the dualism of right and wrong, this and that, he particularly focused on some of the main dualisms of his time, the religious views. And he said somehow one has to go beyond being caught up in dualistic concepts. You know, um, so it, you know, the, the earlier practices we've, we've done help in this way because we learn how to hold our views with less um, attachment. But this is also pointing to views which are just part of our ordinary functioning. A view like a self is a main one that's focused on. And so one of the expressions of this, and it's interesting because the Buddha taught anatta as a, as a teaching, which means not self. He was really saying the usual view of the self as independent, permanent, and so forth is wrong. And he questioned that. But in a way, that wasn't the deeper level of his teaching because he actually wanted to teach, or he, he did teach, and said that actually not-self is one extreme, and self is one extreme, and both are off. In other words, we want to go beyond the sense of there being an independent self, but also that there's no independent self. And this is, this is one of his teaching moments where that, where that came out. <clears throat> he was approached by a wandering yogi named Vachagata who said, 
How is it now, Master Gotama? Is there a self? With that, he was silent. Then is there no self? Again, he was silent. Then the wanderer Vachagota rose from his seat and departed. <laughs> Again, I think this is, part of, this is part of what actually comes across as humor in the tradition. <laughs> he, he's, he's asked the question. He doesn't answer. He's asked the, you know, well, if that's, if that's uh, not true, then is the opposite true. He stays silent. And the wanderer, and then his uh, attendant, Ananda was a little bit flustered by this and said, what's going on? Don't we have a teaching about not-self? Why didn't you get the teaching? You know, and so forth. I mean, he didn't actually say that in what's reported, but he might have said that. He said, why is it that when you were questioned, you did not answer? If Ananda, when I was asked, is there a self? I had answered, there is a self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists, who come down on one side, who think there's eternal being, which was basically the, some of the main Hindu views of his time. There's a self that's permanent. And then when I was asked by him, is there no self? I had answered, there is no self. I would have been siding with the other extreme. There was a group of philosophers in India who said that, you know, the self doesn't last. There's no reality to it. It's just, you know, and so forth. And if I, if, I if I was asked, is there a self? I had answered, there is a self. Would this have been consistent with the knowledge that all phenomena do not have a permanent self? No, it would not. And if when I was asked with him, is there is no self, I had answered, there is no self, the wanderer of Achagota, already confused, would have fallen into even greater confusion thinking, it seems that the self I formerly had does not now exist. Does that clear it up? <laughs> now, actually I have way more material than I'm going to have time for, so I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to be brief and maybe jump to some things. I was going to... Um, let me say a little bit more about what the Buddha was saying. He basically is saying that the deepest insight actually takes one beyond being guided by views whatsoever. And that there's a way of experiencing which is beyond all views, all concepts. One moves beyond the realm of concepts. <clears throat> and that it's possible to achieve that through practice, through insight, and then to live more like that. I think this is presumably how the Buddha was living. So he used concepts pragmatically, but in his own experience, there was a way he was beyond these dualistic concepts of self and so forth. And he, he, described, he, he described the extreme views, the two opposites, the two poles, as dead ends, and also thought that um, there were, when people got attached to views and caught in extremes. Let me see if I can find this quotation. Yeah. He said, anger, confusion, and dishonesty arise when things are set in pairs as opposites. It's a strong statement. Anger, confusion, and dishonesty arise when things are set in pairs as opposites. And he... 
he understood the, let me see, where's He understood it possible to experience beyond views whatsoever. These are a few quotations from him. And just listen to these and see what the impact is on your experience. And he's really pointing to the way that awakening is beyond dualistic concepts. Where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous, that's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. They're both long and short, small and great, fair and foul. Their name and form are wholly destroyed. It's pointing to something beyond even these subtle concepts, beyond self and other, even beyond a sense of time. Another quotation. There is that sphere of being where there is neither this world nor another world, neither moon nor sun, the sphere of being I call neither a coming nor a going, nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution, and no support. It is the end of dukkha. So he's guiding you to neither a coming nor a going nor a standing still. Do you get that sense of going outside of the ordinary concepts? This is how he expressed it in his time. You know, and what emerged over a number of centuries and several millennia are a group of practices that help one to deconstruct concepts. Again, the practices we've been doing are really on the way to that. But there are also further practices. Some of them are sitting with formulations that on the surface don't make sense and watching your logical mind struggle with it. This is similar to what happens in Zen with koans. You know, the teacher Achan Cha, who was one of the great teachers in our lineage here, teacher of Jack Kornfield and Achan Sumedho, some of you have met, he said it like this. He gave, shortly before he actually had a stroke, he gave this teaching to Achan Sumedho, an American-born monk. He said this, here is your teaching that I give you, Sumedho. The Buddha Dhamma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This, Sumedho, is your place of non-abiding. What does the logical mind do with that? Ah! <laughs> yeah. And so we're invited, in a way, to release the concepts, and be present. In a way, all the practices we've done work up to this, and as well, the um, practice and concentration we do works up to this, because we, we learn how to settle the mind, have the mind be less active, right? Be less distracted. All the insight practice we do, all the work with views helps in this way, but what's being pointed to is going beyond more subtle views. And again, remembering that for each of us, sort of assess where you are and what is a good practice for you. It may be to work for the next period of time with the more gross views, right? But there are also these subtle views. <clears throat> Another passage from Achan Cha. 
which sort of brings this out. This is, and this is a little bit like, this is a little bit like Zen, which I'll talk about in a while. This was a teaching that he gave called Still Water Flows, Flowing Water is Still. So you see there's a conscious work with paradox here. Right? It's taking the mind into paradox, and this is actually one of the ways that the mind, that the logical, ordinary mind gives up. The whole idea is that you give up and you just open to conceptless experience as the mind gets deconstructed. So this is Achen Cha. We can understand that still water doesn't flow. We can understand that flowing water isn't still. But when we practice, we experience both of these together. The mind of a true practitioner is like still water that flows or flowing water that's still. Whatever takes place in the mind of a Dharma practitioner will have that quality. Only flowing is not correct. Only still is not correct. When we have experience of practice, our minds will be in this condition of flowing water that is still. Can you feel that? Can you feel a sense of flow and also a sense of stillness? That's what he's pointing to. So it's going beyond this usual dichotomy we make that it either has to be flowing or still. And again, over the centuries in the tradition, there were techniques that tried to take people beyond their limited concepts. One of them was developed by the philosopher Nargajana, who, whose aim was to cut through conceptual fixation. And he actually was very concerned by the Buddhist teachings of his time. Many of them, he thought, involved dogmatic attachment to Buddhist views. And he gave this whole set of ways that he showed in his work that if you dogmatically cling to one side of a dualism, it will lead you to contradiction. It will lead you to actually um, come into contradiction such that the original view makes no sense. And then he would do it with the opposite view and show the same thing. This, was actually, this has actually been done in Western philosophy as well. Some of, anyone study Kant ever? But if you read Western philosophy, this was also done. They showed that metaphysical, Kant showed that metaphysical views depended on this duality, and then he showed how either side of the duality, if you push it, led to contradiction. In other words, you, for, his, for him, you couldn't really use concepts for metaphysical views like is there a God or is there not a God, is there a soul, and so forth. There's some parallels. And so there was a kind of deconstruction of concepts with Nargajana. Um, I was going to go into more detail about Nargajana because I really, I've been studying him for like 40 years and I really I, I wanted to share it more, but I think it's going to need another time maybe. But maybe just to give some more flavor of this, uh, let me just read a passage from Nargajana. One of the, one of the, one of the places where you can really see that uh, subtle view is around the concept of self, right? We have the concept of self. We think we're different from others, right? Whether we think there's a radical dualism of self and other. And Nargajana, as well as Buddhist tradition, challenges that. 
where we think that there's an independent self that's different from my history, you know? And again, this is valuable on an everyday level. On an everyday level, it makes sense to talk about, you know, there being a continuous self that, you know, goes back to the car that you drove and so forth. That's useful, <laughs> you know, to have a sense of continuity, to have a sense of referring to self. But what's being claimed is that on, when you actually look closely to it, it's a construction. It doesn't make sense ultimately, and that getting attached to the construction causes suffering. Again, this is at a subtle level of the teaching. Here, one example of Nurgajana, he took the sense of, is the self the same as the conditions and causes and conditions which affect it, or is it different? And the way he works is you have to, you have, to have clear definitions, you have to have uh, a dualistic structure, two choices, and then he says, well, if you believe that the self is separate from the conditions on which you depend, your life doesn't make sense. And if you think that you're the same as the causes and conditions, then where's the self? I'm giving a very short version of it, but basically if you follow this, you say, oh, my, I, you know, I can't take the view that I'm different from causes and conditions, and I can't take the view that I'm the same. They lead to contradictions. And he, he concluded, you are not the same or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. So you, it's a middle way. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. And maybe just to make this more familiar... <laughs> We're getting into an interesting territory. You know, again, this is ultimately practice. The, <clears throat> the Zen tradition also tried to work with this, right? So in Zen, you know Zen koans? What is the sound of one hand clapping? This is designed to deconstruct subtle views. And there are, there are all these different methods. Some of them are meditative. Some of them use concepts. Some of them use dialogue. And I think I'm going to have to do this again, right? Unless you're saying, ah, let me out of here. <laughs> you'll, you'll decide. Um, but the, uh, in, in Zen, they, they often use a technique of koans in which you're, you're supposed to continually think about something which actually doesn't make logical sense. So some of the koans were, does a dog have Buddha nature? And the, answer, the correct answer to the koan is moo. <laughs> not, not moo as in cows, but another one. What was your original face before your mother and father were born? Has anyone done koan practice? What do, you, what do you do is you actually sit there and your mind just goes through all the possible answers to the question until you realize there is no answer in which case your conceptual mind relaxes and hopefully opens up to a different spacious way of being, which is being pointed to. This is this way of being beyond concepts. Um, another one, famous one, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Now, if we're clever, we're going to actually try to come up with conceptual answers, right? You come up, oh, the sound of one hand clapping is... And it... And it and if you go to the Zen teacher with that answer, the Zen teacher says, 
get out of here. <laughs> right? And so you have the, here's another one. <clears throat> um, this is from the Korean Zen teacher, Sun Sunim. He holds up an orange and says, is this an orange? If you say yes, I hit you 30 times. If you say, if you say no, I hit you 30 times. And you have to answer. <laughs> right? <clears throat> Here's, this is from the uh, third Zen patriarch. Emptiness here, emptiness there, but the infinite universe stands always before our eyes, infinitely large and infinitely small. No difference, for definitions have vanished and no boundaries are seen. So too with being and non-being. Don't waste time in doubts and arguments that have nothing to do with this. One thing, all things, move among and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. So another duality is perfection and non-perfection, right? To live in this faith is the road to non-duality because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. Words, the way is beyond language, for in it there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. So you can sense this is pointing. This is, again, this is subtle level. There's the gross level work that we do with concepts and views, which is very important, and we do on an everyday level. And as we go more deeply, it can open up to this more subtle level. Again, I've defined the subtle level as the looking into the unconscious psychological views, the unconscious social conditioning or the half-conscious social conditioning, and then this further dimension of just having our lives be so structured by concepts. And the pointing is towards the possibility of seeing the concepts as constructions and learning how to let go even of their usage to open up to a deeper way of being with the world. And there's a progression, and there, again, there are practices. I've sort of taken us quickly from the ordinary to the more subtle, but there's a whole gradual way that one can work up to that more subtle level. And I think I'm going to have to have one more time <laughs> to do this. And, and of course, you know, and then... Um, let me see, I was going to close. Let's see. Two, two short quotations. One is from Sir Richard Francis Burton, who was the 19th century English translator of the Arabian Nights, not typically known as a great Dharma figure. But he said something that I really liked. He said this. this is a, now, you have to listen carefully. This is all the realm of paradox, right? So if, you, if you're interested in this more subtle view, you have to be comfortable with paradox. One knows not how to know who knows not how to unknow. One knows not how to know who knows not how to unknow. Okay, in a little more ordinary English, this is from Nargajana from the second century, who is this great master 
of what could be called paradoxical deconstruction of ordinary views. He ended his greatest work with this passage for Gautama, Gautama Buddha, in whose embrace Dharma was shown and opinions vanished. So this is the, that, that's the flavor. And that's the exploration of this really subtle quality of mind beyond concepts or beyond uh, attachment to views. And I think we've all had those kind of experiences at times, right? How many, how many can relate to at least some glimmers of these kind of experiences? Yeah. And so what's being suggested here is that's something that one can actually practice and move towards and have it be a more regular option. Again, it's not, doesn't mean you get rid of views, doesn't mean you don't use them, it doesn't mean you, you don't use them skillfully, but in this, in this uh, ability to really go beyond concepts altogether in certain kinds of experiences, there's a way that it really makes a difference in terms of how one uses views, because you have a, maybe a deep sense, at least for moments, that concepts are constructed at best to be used skillfully. Concepts are constructions at best to be used skillfully. And we come to know that. And so look for those experiences because they're, you know, they're, they're there in common experiences. Actually, my, um, one of my Tibetan teachers says, look for them when you yawn. Sometimes when you yawn, the mind just ends its conceptual work. Or when you're totally exhausted, you come back from a long trip, you're totally exhausted, and the mind just isn't doing anything. Look for that. Look for that. As well as times when there's just a, a deep level of peace or quiet in your mind. So these are naturally occurring. What can be done with practice is that they can be more stabilized as an as a ordinary regular capacity that we can go to that we can go to, again, out of that, one can have a, you know, maybe a, a different perspective, for example, on the judgmental mind or an attachment to views. One knows from one's experience that actually the deep truth, and the other side of this, you know, the, I didn't mention it, but the other side of this opening to beyond views and concepts is that the, uh, the heart quality of it is love that love also has that quality of being beyond views, doesn't it? Yeah. And so this going beyond views from the more cognitive perspective has that meaning of an open awareness. From the heart level, it has the meaning of love and compassion, and even a kind of love which has uh, no boundaries. Right? So that's, that's, and this is really pointing to qualities which we can call qualities of awakened awareness. It's really pointing towards 
where we're going. And, I, and again, I'm maintaining that we all experience this. What we can do with practice is have them be more, there more and more of the time. That's really what practice is. Actually, I don't think awakening is not a mystery. You know what it is to be awake, but they're just, you know, they can be just flashes or moments or great experiences. The practice, you know, what we have beautifully in this tradition is we have systematic ways to go about the practice. And I think when we kind of join those practices with the practice related to the psychological and the social dimension, we have a beautiful sense of what it means to awaken in our time. That's what this is pointing to. And so I would say, so the next um, installment of this teaching doesn't occur for four weeks, at least here. (laughs) So please carry on. Choose one or two of the practices I've mentioned or, uh, again, look for those qualities of opening when they occur. They, They are occurring. They are occurring. They're they're. They're occurring. So look for that. Work with attachment to views. Be mindful of your views. Be mindful of attachments. Listen to others. See where there's reactivity. And then also look for the subtle views on all the dimensions we've talked about. So thank you for listening. And um, let's just take a moment to see what the intention is coming out of the morning. And then we offer, for the benefit of all beings, we offer the fruits of our mourning. May they be there for each of us, for everyone in our lives, and then ultimately to all beings. So thank you for bearing with me. I appreciate it. And to be continued. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.